Welcome to another episode of Across the Pond. We are straight into the new year. Barry joins us from Johannesburg, South Africa again. Barry, happy new year. Likewise, likewise, Chad. Let's do the first jingle for 2020. It's actually insane to think that we are in a new decade, um, 2020. Can you believe it? Uh, just, just, just the thought of, of being here is, is crazy. No, it's it's madness, and uh, it's there's something special about a round number when it comes to a year. It really does feel like an extra clean slate. 2019 kind of feels like you're coming to the end of the decade. 2020 is brand new, and I'm sure all the puns about 2020 vision are going to come through this year as well. So hopefully we have the vision going <laughs> forward that's crystal clear, uh, moving towards our goals. And uh, yeah, excited to be excited to do it. That does sound really good. I mean, Barry just told me he's already got a good head start on some of his goals uh, for the year. Um, so that's that's good to know. I have uh, made this episode on time as well. So, you know, getting a good, good start. Job, good job. A good start as, <laughs> as well. And, and also during the kind of holiday break, actually uh, plunged myself into my next challenge. So booked the next half Ironman. So, yeah, we're definitely in the swing of our uh, New Year goals. And like you said, maybe this 2020 vision um, will propel us into uh, sort of a new a new wave of self-improvement and uh, yeah just just accomplishment this year yeah definitely i think it's a good good chance to to restart and to reinvent yourself if you need to if you feel like things are going well to build on that momentum um, and just go in with a little bit of positivity some enthusiasm and hopefully carry that through the rest of the year Absolutely. I just wanted to start this episode off by just uh, quickly clarifying something. I had a really nice little compliment coming in from one of my friends um, who basically said she wasn't sure she was uh, part of our target audience, but can't help but listen to us and uh, and just actually can't stop listening to us once she starts. So I just wanted to clarify that every single person is our target audience. So long as you're keen to stay abreast of what's happening in the world and want to just be the best that you can be, this podcast is for you. So please don't feel like uh, you know there's any sort of specific uh, target audience here. As long as that's you, um, you fit the bill. Please do tune in uh, whenever you can. So shall we get into the swing of this episode and look back on what happened uh, this last decade? Let's do it. The week that was. Alrighty, so obviously this last week uh, we've been in the, in the mix of the holiday break. Not a lot has been going on. Uh, but I did see a nice article from BBC basically summarizing some of the uh, big re- revolutions that happened in this last decade. Let's go through the list, Barry. Uh, we'll kind of just chat through each of them. So the first thing is uh, further developments on internet dating. So Tinder. This massive boom. Um, oh, it, yes. It, oh, yes. <laughs> it certainly did uh, change the game. I've not used it myself, but uh, obviously, loads of my friends have. Um, it's kind of, I believe, bred a bit of a hookup culture, um, but I believe research still showing that marriage is still the common end goal of dating. Um, so, what do you make of apps like this that have revolutionized the game? Yeah, so they certainly have changed the game, and that's for sure. I think online dating, say, 10 years ago, in the previous decades, we had a bit of a stigma around it. They had things like Match.com, and you'd go online and put up these elaborate profiles. I like long walks on the beach, and you would put all this good stuff on. And uh, anyone who met on those on those platforms kind of didn't want to admit that they had met there, and there was a huge stigma around it. Yeah. I think in this past decade, that stigma has disappeared completely with apps like Tinder and Bumble, and there's a thousand different versions for every single niche that you want to, to, want to go and try. Yeah. And what they have done is they've taken away that 
almost the admin of that huge profile and focus purely on pictures and a short biography. So like you say, I, I don't know if it's bred a hookup, hookup culture or maybe just revealed a hookup culture that was there beforehand, but this idea of logging onto your phone and swiping through thousands of potential mates has certainly changed the way that people think about dating um, and think about like trying to find someone to, to hook up with. Um, for me, for me personally, I think it's got pros and cons. I've heard friends who've had success stories about it. I've had friends who've come out and found relationships or found like meaning, meaningful things from it. So that's been really cool to hear. But then I've also heard like scary stories about people messing with each other and playing games and, and that kind of stuff. So I think it depends on what you want. Um, I, I, I'm all for it as long as you're honest and upfront about what you want out of that experience. And uh, for some people, they've really found value in it. So I think it's it's definitely it definitely changed the game when it comes to online dating. Um, and those apps are here to stay, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I think, as you say, when you kind of break out the key components of what was a dating site in the past, I think that one of the, the key things that this has added is obviously that location data. So a lot of people actually even go on holiday, for example, open their app and, and sort of see what's around. Um, so yeah, I think that's also kind of changed the game a bit in adding that location data. Uh, we've obviously spoken about privacy and that kind of thing. So a lot of the time, it's, it's just kind of in a Band, I believe. Um, but yeah, very interesting to see how that has changed the game. Now, the next one we've spoken about in previous shows, obviously something that you're quite keen on, um, cryptocurrency, something that wasn't even around, uh, you know, obviously at the, at the start of the decade. So let's just have a look, uh, a quick chat through what the technology is, um, blockchain technology, um, and where it's at in its implementation. Obviously, we all know of kind of the, the, the biggest one being Bitcoin, uh, but there's loads of, uh, loads of different, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies. So do you want to just chat us through a brief sort of high level of what blockchain technology is and uh, where we're at at the moment with it? Sure. So it's very hard to be brief because it's a very complicated technology, and 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 we, we could do a, we could do a whole series of episodes about it. But um, basically, I I see it as the biggest technological advancement of this decade, right? I see it as the biggest fundamental shift in how we think about computing, how we think about networking, how we think about value transfer, and basically, like the key idea here is that it's a public ledger that is that is viewable by everybody that doesn't require a third party intermediary to decide. Cool, this is a verified transaction. So in the past, if you wanted, to, if I wanted to send you money, Chad, I would have to trust a bank in the middle of the two of us to make sure that the money got to you. And in this world of digital money, where money is not actual cash anymore, it's just numbers and in a database, we've now introduced interesting mathematical ways of being able to verify a transaction is real and it's not dupl duplicated and it's not fraudulent, but verified through code and through encryption and cryptography, which is where the crypto comes from, as opposed to trusting a bank or a third party to do it. So what that enables, it, it takes out a lot of the friction that used to be there in transfers. And like we chatted about in a previous episode, I could theoretically send you a large sum of money for a very low cost and it could be in your account within 20 to 30 minutes as opposed to sending it through the traditional financial system where it could take three days and someone's got to check that and etc etc so blockchain technology has really enabled a lot of this kind of this value transfer and a lot of these like things like smart contracts and th those sorts of things to happen without third parties so for peer-to-peer -peer transactions and peer-to-peer -peer, um, communication is very very powerful 
cryptocurrency itself has obviously been very controversial because we've seen tremendous speculation on the price and the price has gone has a, had a lot of volatility over the last last year and certainly the last few years um, but I think the price is a distraction from the underlying technology the underlying technology is really world changing and has a huge amount of potential and we'll have to wait to see what happens 2020 going forward as to whether some of that potential really comes to bear or if it becomes a fad that kind of fades over time and no one knows the answer to that right now now like you said i think uh one of the key parts to this is um it's a different way to think about how we use data and and kind of yeah basically just just kind of govern data so is in terms of applications are we restricted here just to banking type scenarios or are there other use case scenarios where we use this technology um that you know are, are not involving banking um sort of applications no, definitely. There are, there are much wider ranging implications. And I would argue that the cryptocurrency is probably one of the least interesting applications of this technology because of various constraints around fiat currency and governments wanting to be involved, etc. There's a wide range of other implications. To give you some examples, one that I'm quite excited about is when it comes to privacy and it comes to identification, there is a way potentially to identify yourself say when it comes to an ID number or a passport or some sort of identification we use in the physical world, but on a digital token that we can then use to verify our identity online. So for example, instead of going to the South African government and getting a driver's license that has a code on it that identifies who I am, I could have a crypto token that does the exact same thing without having to use a government, and I could show that token to somebody else and verify that I'm the person I say I am without revealing my personal identification. Okay. So, for, for example, if you, if you were to go to, like, let me try to think of an analogy. If I was to go to a club, for example, and the club only allows people who are 18 years and older, right? I go up to the bouncer. The bouncer asks me to show ID. At, at, at the moment, what I have to do is I have to show them my driver's license, which shows my ID number, my date of birth, all sorts of information about me right. that the bouncer doesn't need to know. All the bouncer needs to know that is that I am over 18. But I, 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 can't, I can't only show him that information. I've got to show him the whole driver's license. Right. When it comes to a privacy, what they call a privacy coin or a privacy token, I could then mathematically prove that I was over 18 without revealing any of that information. And the bouncer yeah. trusts the mathematical encryption rather than just me showing a piece of paper. And so what it does is, again, it removes that intermediary completely and allows me to prove that I'm 18 um, without showing my name, my ID number, any of that personal information to the bouncer itself. So that's an analogy of what can happen online. We think about privacy, we think about information exchange. That's the one thing. Another example might be, is if say, say I'm, I'm a supply chain company and I'm trying to track shipments or trying to check things moving around the world, I can tokenize each of those assets or each of those pieces of machinery or, or products or whatever the story is and track that all around the world using tokens. Um, and actually I can sell that token while it's on the way to, to the receiver, um, removing the need for some sort of trusted intermediary to make sure that, that that package actually goes through. So there's lots of interesting things when it comes to Internet of Things, when it comes to supply chain, when it comes to privacy. The, 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 the world is absolutely wide here, and the yeah. oyster is, is up for the grabs, right? And uh, it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. I think a lot of the issue with blockchain is that a lot of people are trying to throw blockchain at everything without understanding right. what it's useful for or what it's good for, right? So not every problem requires blockchain. And I would say 90% of the companies who claim to use blockchain are, are throwing it at something that doesn't need blockchain. But there are certain use cases where it can be very, very powerful. And we'll have to wait to see whether it can actually, like, 
take up some of this potential or it's going to be like lost in the quagmire of just nonsense of buzzwords and bingo and whatnot where people don't actually understand what the tech is useful for. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, on that first use case, um, I just wanted to quickly expand on that just a tiny bit. Um, in terms of the, the data privacy part, so being a public ledger, how do we uh, tokenize ourselves and you know, have, have kind of unique references, but anonymize the rest of it? So in, in, a, in a ledger that is maintained by the, by the public, uh, essentially, and that's accessible by the public, how are we able to, um, yeah, basically keep the keep it encrypted? Yeah, so that's a good question. So what happens is that there is a public key and what's called a private key. And those right. two keys make up what goes onto that ledger, right? So the public key is what is viewable across the world. So I can see that public key X sent this amount of money to public key Y. In order to access what that transaction was or when it was done or who, who is related to that public key, I need to be able to unlock that private key. And that private key is encrypted using cryptography, which means that it's very, 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 very difficult okay. to identify who is the person behind that, that public key. So that, that interaction between the public and the private key and that gap in between is what's, what the, where the cryptography is actually working. That is what ensures that the information behind the wall can't be seen, yet I can prove certain pieces of it by using cryptography and, and creating a hash function that really shows on the other side, on the public side, that I've met some criteria or I've, I've verified some sort of transaction. And so that's that's a kind of how it works. It's yeah. very, very complicated. And uh, what is interesting, though, is that what, what could potentially break the blockchain or potentially break some of this cryptography is quantum computing which is a theoretical computing kind of world that is in the pipeline and some people claim to be getting making closer to it. Um, and that could change the whole landscape because that could enable us to brute force these kinds of algorithms. Right. But at the moment, with our current computing processes, we don't have enough power or enough time to brute force these algorithms, which makes those things secure. And that's why you can hide information behind your private key and use your public key to interact online. And that's where the, the, the viewable part is does that make sense that makes complete sense thank you very much for simplifying something that is uh madly complex um and i'm sure yeah i'm sure our listeners are, are pretty keen to to hear about some of those developments um if they haven't heard of them already um let's move on to the next one which is quite a big one really if you even include this podcast um in the way that everyone listens and essentially consumes media um you know a decade ago we didn't have spotify and apple music and um netflix um so yeah essentially streaming services for the way that we basically consume our media the way that we watch tv um if we even watch tv anymore has changed dramatically um this is quite a bit of progress on uh, on that front, don't you think? It depends on who you're speaking to, right? So it's very controversial because the, the artists and the people who used to sell these things theoretically made a lot more money, whereas in the streaming world, it's really changed the business model when it comes to music and when it comes to content and video, etc., and changed the way that we access this content. Yeah. If you think about a, f a few years before streaming, I, I would have to go and buy each individual album to put onto my iTunes and uh, really like send that money directly to those artists. Whereas now Spotify or Apple Music will give me every song that's ever been recorded for a minimal fee. And so it's really changed the way we think about that media. I was reading an interesting article about the fact that 
do you remember when, like back, back, in, back in those days, it feels like it's so <laughs> long ago, but a few years ago, before streaming, um, your like your iTunes, your iTunes um, archive or your iTunes library really said a lot about you. Right, so you could go to some friends' iTunes archive, and based on what they had in their iTunes, you could tell a lot about their tastes and what what and, and whatnot. And before even that, like you look at someone's albums that they had bought, you could really tell a lot because those albums were expensive in relative terms. Definitely. Yep. And so if you'd spend money on that album, you really liked that artist. And so by going to someone's bookshelf and seeing the books that they had bought, the albums they had bought, the iTunes library, you could tell a lot about them. In today's world, you can't do that anymore <laughs> because we just have access to everything in, in the entire world. Um, and so there's an interesting thing there to be said about how we curate what we listen to and how we curate what we watch. Um, there's been a lot more where algorithms are deciding what we're watching and what we're listening to because yep. they're putting it in front of our faces as opposed to, say, listening to a friend's recommendation and going to download it by myself and then enjoying that album on its own. So it's really changed that. When it comes to music, it's also changed the way that we, we kind of listen to songs individually now. Where we used to think about them as albums. right? Yep. You used to go yep. buy the album and think about it as one piece of work. Now we're more than happy to take the one Taylor Swift song and the one Eminem song and the one Drake song and kind of make a playlist out of all of those and we don't think about it as an album that an artist has put out. Um, so it really has dramatically changed the way that we think about media um, and some for the good, some for the bad. It depends on who you talk to. What do you think, Chad? I'm, I'm definitely on the good side completely. Um, as you say, I mean, in terms of actually thinking about and, and actually curating your own music, I'm definitely guilty on that front. I do rely on the sort of automatically generated playlists. Uh, well, not automatically generated. Uh, well, there are ones that, that do automatically generate, but even others that sort of the Spotify curators would put together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of a particular mood or a particular use case, you know, you kind of just pull up a, a, a playlist for, let's say, focus music, and all of a sudden you've got, you know, classical uh, piano music in the background. Um, similarly, if you're at gym, you know, you can kind of put on like a beast mode type uh, playlist. And, you know, all of those types of applications I find very useful. The thing that I find really interesting is, yeah, just the change in thought here. So do we actually need to own this music forever or can we just rent it? Seeing as we're going to probably be, um, you know, buying, let's say, an album a month every, you know, for the for the rest of time. Um, is it not more productive for us to spend that money on a subscription that entitles us to the use of a library um, that, you know, ultimately... Uh, we, we can use for the rest of time and in terms of just touching on uh, you know your point about artists um i i completely i can completely get that but i do think though that this has opened up their listening bases um so i think a lot of a lot of artists now have the opportunity if they are uh, you know really really keen to put in the the rest of the piece of the puzzle which is live concerts which is now a big part of um artists sort of um, income streams because of because of this world and um, they now at least have a lot more options of of places to go um, because of this wide open listener base which I think is absolutely fascinating um, so yeah I definitely think it's it's changed the game in in, in a big way and uh, like you said depending on which side of the coin you sit um, it, it's really an interesting one um which which side are you on on that uh, out of interest I think I think it's good for the I think it's good for everybody. I think that um, at the end of the day, it's the right decision, and that's where the world is going. And from a consumer yeah. standpoint, as you say, it's certainly a much better experience being able to pay my whatever sixty rand a month, hundred rand a month, and get access to everything that I want is really really powerful. And like you say, it's it's lowered those barriers to entry. So it's yeah. given us the kind of artists like Billie Eilish, who might not have been able to get a major record deal with distribution and all of that stuff beforehand, yeah. but nowadays they can record in their bedroom and 
put it on Spotify and really like make a career for themselves. So I think we're getting better music from it. I think we're getting a wider range of music. So we're seeing all sorts of like ra rather random niche artists who are tackling a very, very small portion of the market. But because they have access to the whole world's music, they can find their audience and find the people that really like their stuff. So I think it's good in the end. I think that people like Napster and those kind of apps beforehand who went yeah. to jail for this kind of stuff before <laughs> this all became mainstream, they're probably feeling a bit like terrible. Um, like they kind of pioneered this whole movement. They pioneered this whole like peer-to-peer -peer sharing and peer-to-peer -peer kind of stuff. And obviously it was illegal back then so they <laughs> faced the consequences but a few yeah. years later it's the mainstream so that's a bit strange i think um, but i think this technology is is inevitable and that's where the world is going with millennials people like us we want we don't want to own anything right the whole the whole <laughs> cliche is we don't want to own anything we want to rent everything we want on demand when we want it how we exactly. want it yep. and so i don't see that changing anytime soon absolutely fascinating um, and it's just good to good to see that the live game is still is still going um, and a lot of these things you know we're kind of switching to the virtual everything um, and it's still nice to know that um, you know people actually still go to live concerts and and uh, basically put put a bit of cash into the artist's pockets um, let's move on to uh, basically the next one so legalization of same-sex marriage in England Wales and Scotland um, basically, the world seems to be becoming more tolerable and accepting of each other. Um, and uh, yeah, there's also been an increased rally by companies um, to promote diversity and inclusivity uh, in the workplaces. Um, a lot of companies even putting the, the pride flag um, as part of their company branding. Um, so, I mean, what do you make of this, this wave? Um, you know, I think just a positive thing, really. Yeah, I think so. I think it's been the most important social progress we made in the last decade. I think that when it comes to moving the needle on social issues, this kind of tolerance and this kind of diversity has has finally be become to seen as an asset, right? Previously, it was always seen as cool. We actually we, we we want to focus on what we know works and kind of the people around me. I'm going to pick people who think like me who are like me. And then we started to realize that diversity of thoughts, diversity of backgrounds, sexual orientation, gender, race, all of these things is actually an asset to yep. a team or organization or whatever it is absolutely um, and that's and that's very important so I'm very glad to have seen that progress one th one thing where I am a little bit sad is that Africa has kind of been lagging on that front there's a lot of African countries especially in Central and Eastern Africa who still are criminalized homosexuality who still like are very very against same-sex marriage and so I'm hoping that progress slowly comes into African context yeah. as well but when you look at the states when you look at Australia when you look at Europe like you said um, I think we've seen fantastic progress there so long may continue there's a lot more we need to do there's a lot more um communities and and people who feel disenfranchised or feel like they're excluded from the general populace we need to be tolerant we need to be understanding of each other regardless of where we come from or whatever group we we tend to to, to form ourselves into yeah and actually i think the the biggest goal here is to get to the point where we don't need to talk about it because it's so normal and it just generally accepted where everyone is is equal regardless of any preferences or, or sort of you know backgrounds um so completely agree great progress made there um, and we'll just kind of see how that follows out into the next decade um then basically to touch on onto one of the other social movements that happened the uh hashtag me too campaign um that basically just exposed um and and basically brought about visibility to the magnitude of of sexual harassment which i feel for a long time was sort of just rooted in in silence uh you know people didn't feel like they could speak about this also because of the fact that they didn't have access to others who were going through the same thing uh, without, you know, uh, letting out a lot of information about themselves that, you know, they didn't feel comfortable to do. Um, and social media here has really opened this up and, and let people 
kind of just expose uh, what's actually going on in the world. Um, so again, uh, basically giving power to the people. What do you make of this one? This is one that probably surprised me the most of the last couple of years um, because I, I obviously knew sexual harassment was a thing and I'd heard a lot about it, but I didn't realize how widespread it was until yeah. we started having these discussions, right? So the Me Too movement was really powerful in getting men, especially to kind of talk to their female friends, talk to their partners, talk to the females in their life and find out a lot of horrible things that I didn't realize about friends of mine and people really close to me yeah. who had been through these sorts of experiences. And so I think it's another example of how communication and talking about difficult issues and talking about things that are taboo is actually very powerful when it comes to society building. Yeah. And I think about it a lot when it comes to freedom of speech and, and the ability to discuss difficult topics or, or, or controversial issues, right? By being able to converse and being able to talk about these things allows us to actually have more empathy for the people around us and hopefully make progress as a society rather than, as you say, keeping it in the dark and keeping it very silent and then people don't know about it. I would never have understood the extent to which this happens if I didn't have these conversations in the last year uh, with my male friends and with my female friends about their experiences. And when they start to open up because they've been inspired by seeing someone in the limelight or seeing someone online kind of open up about their experiences, and feel comfortable enough to share that and, and, and kind of explore some of the hurt they've gone through, some of the, the harassment or some of the like pain they've gone through, it really kind of shines a light on it and that's how we can improve it. That's how we can make a difference. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's been a huge surprise. I didn't realize the extent. Um, it's really sad in me to hear a lot of the stories from people very close to me. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we're talking about it and it's, it's the right thing to be talking about. Um, it's a horrible, horrible thing to go through and we should be doing everything we can to set the right example for our sons, for our people, males in our life to make sure that this kind of sexual harassment ends um, as much as we can and that the people who are the perpetrators, the people who think it's okay, we change those social norms to ensure that they are excluded when we think about morality, we think about ethics. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's a good movement. I think that there are some issues sometimes with how radical some of the feminists get around Me Too, but for the mainstream, the kind of conversations that I've been having in my social circles, it's been a fantastic boon, and hopefully the progress continues to move forward. Absolutely. Um, like you say, I mean, just, just being able to get to basics, really, and, and start talking about things. Um, it, it's really interesting how, as time goes by, um, you know, I, watching a documentary about political correctness, um, a lot of these topics have kind of just... Uh, sort of faded out um, because we don't feel like we can speak about some of these things um, but like you say we're not going to make any progress unless we actually have those difficult conversations address the elephants in the room um, and ultimately bring about change um, in starting really with our own circle of friends um, so yeah very interesting um, campaign that came about and uh, I'm just really glad that it's started this conversation and, and ultimately got us a little bit closer to where we'd like to be in society as a whole. Uh, now let's move on to something that actually did happen this week. Um, basically, a, a big data leak taking place. Um, a New Year's honors list here in the UK being released um, with some pretty key information um, of all of the people who had received these awards, including residential addresses. Now, some high-profile people being included in this list. Um, and the really interesting thing here for me is how hard government are pushing for GDPR, yet government are releasing public addresses of celebrities and uh, and the like. What, what are your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a really bad mistake. As you say, it's a, it's a huge double standard. And so whoever, whoever leaked these or whoever made this mistake, they, they really must be feeling it right now. Um, I think that it's, it's one of those things where people in the limelight, we kind of feel invested in their lives. We kind of, we, we follow them online. We follow, we know everything about them. We, we understand, we, we spend a lot of time with them in, in our ears or watching them online, etc. Um, but there has to be that firewall between their real life and their online life, right? Yeah. And so like letting loose their addresses, obviously the crazies of the world are now going to take that and go wild. And uh, there's some serious safety concerns in a lot of cases where people who will go to the houses of these famous people and look to harass or look to throw things or look to say things or whatever the story is, or even worse sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so I think th there's a word for this. I think it's called doxing where people will publish this information um, with, with malicious intent to try and like instigate things happening. And uh, we've seen it a number of times with a lot of YouTubers and people who vlog or stuff in their house a lot. People will take pictures of their house from inside their house and triangulate using satellite imagery and figure out the exact address okay. of somebody. Um, and then release that to the public and let them let the mob mentality take over. I know that David Dobrik, who's, who's a big YouTuber at the moment, um, is th considering moving out of his huge mansion in LA because so many people are outside his door all the time and that his assistant is actually worried for her safety. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of issues there when it comes to releasing this public information and it really is a mistake we shouldn't be accepting or condoning at any stage. Absolutely. Definitely, definitely agree there. Um, I mean, just to add on to that example, I hadn't heard of that term, um, but I think, uh, like you said, it's it's an important thing that we should be speaking about. Um, I believe I was actually just chatting with a friend uh, over the weekend, um, and I believe Billie Eilish had the same thing happen um, where she now has to have uh, bodyguards at home when she's around. Um, so yeah, really, really sad when this happens. Um, and uh, as you say, I mean, people who build professions that are in the limelight, uh, it's just that. Um, every profession, you know, has its unique uh, key attributes um, and, you know, some include fame and, uh, you know, this, I feel like as a basic human right, uh, shouldn't ever be something that someone needs to to worry about. Um, you, you shouldn't be sort of tamed for, for pursuing the career you want um, because you're scared of your, you know, personal identity being under uh, scrutiny. So I completely agree there and uh, hopefully some change happens here. Now this next one, I definitely saw something about on over the weekend, but I didn't watch. Please tell me some good news, Barry. <laughs> so I figured that because we're coming, coming at you from Johannesburg and London, it's, it's only right that we talk about this <laughs> Africa vs. England test series that just, that just started. Um, and so the, the first test started on Boxing Day. Um, South Africa were coming into it with um, a lot of chaos behind the scenes, a lot of backroom issues when it comes to their, their staff. And the actual the Cricket South Africa itself as a body is under severe financial difficulty with a lot of corruption and a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes there. And uh, Mark Boucher, the brand new coach, was um, named as coach like a few days before. So there was very little preparation, a lot of chaos behind the scenes. And so no one really knew how the South African team were going to show up. Um, and England arrived in South Africa and all of a sudden had a huge stomach bug that took over most of the camp. So from the warm-up match itself, there were about eight or nine players who were completely manned down for days at a time. A lot of guys staying in bed for the four or five days before the test match. Not only the players, but the support staff. So the directions manager, the communications manager, the team liaison. Wow. The, the list was crazy. So this super contagious bug... Um, 
also took hold of the England team. So both teams weren't at their best. They were both coming from very, very difficult situations. Um, and it was a fantastic, fantastic match. And South Africa managed to win it in the end quite comprehensively, playing very well in Centurion. Um, so for a South African like me, I was very happy to see that. Um, the Pommies obviously won the World Cup um, this, this, this a few months ago. And so they were kind of seen as a very, very strong side. And South Africa had been played very poorly in the last year. Um, and so I'm very happy to report South Africa won that very comprehensively. And I hope that continues throughout the series. We've got a few matches to go. I mean, like you said here, um, matches like these where, you know, both teams are not at their best sometimes deserve a bit of an asterisk. Um, and I wanted to actually chat about, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in the 1995 World Cup, there was a, a certainly a similar kind of um, phenomenon here where the New Zealand team, I believe, were, were kind of manned down a few days prior. Now, the, the question is, obviously, um, you know, whether this happened organically, whether things like these um, in future should have some sort of way of, of postponing events, um, especially when you're looking at finals of, of tournaments, um, or, you know, ultimately, if, if, if it's being used as a kind of excuse, really. Yeah, I think sport is sport. And one of the beautiful things about sport is that it's unpredictable, is that there's so many different factors that come into play and that you're, you're representing your country, right? So whatever you got to do to get through that, whatever issues you're dealing with, whatever things happen in the background, when you get onto that field, you got to do the best that you can and the chips fall where they may. Um, and so, yeah, I think you can always throw excuses. You can always say things about, about the, the circumstances or the preparation or any of that. But uh, sport is sport. And what matters is what happens on the pitch. Um, and pushing through those barriers. And we've seen lots of examples of people coming through bad things like that and being able to perform even better because they have this extra motivation they want to have something to prove. Yeah. Um, and so I think for me, whatever happens behind the scenes is bygones are bygones. Once you're on that pitch, it's who plays better on the day. And that's what sport's all about. Completely agree there. Um, just to just to, while we're on the topic of of cricket, I actually um, watched a, a series of documentaries which will be coming out in our stuff I found interesting um, section of the podcast. But basically, one of the episodes was on cricket, um, and I actually uh, may be a bit silly for this, um, but I actually didn't realize it was such a new sport. Um, so. If you are with me on this and you, you kind of previously didn't know much about the background of cricket, um, yeah, basically it was a game that was invented in England uh, for a lot of people, Lords, uh, the Lords Cricket Ground in England being the home of, of cricket for, for this exact reason. Um, and it was really just uh, introduced to all of England's colonies around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, the first two World Cups were actually held in England. Um, and it seems like it was a bit of a surprise when a different country wanted to actually hold the World Cup. It was like England sport. Um, and now if we look at how the game of cricket has changed and how uh, basically it's been, been a game that was rooted by a, a room of individuals in the Lord's Cricket Ground um, to essentially being a game that is now really dominated, I'd say, um, by the T20 franchise, which is also being an invention from this uh, past decade, or I, I think. Um, you can definitely correct me there, Barry. Um, and essentially it's now a big entertainment skeptical that is rooted and, and dominated by India. Um, I think that's a fascinating story of a game um, that has changed so dramatically in recent times. 
Definitely, and there's lots, there's lots to unpack there. Like, I, I think it's, I think it's key to remember that this was an English colonial game, right? So if you look at the teams that play it, or the countries that play it, it's all of their old colonies. It's kind of a Commonwealth sport, right? Yep. And it's changed a lot over the last, over the last kind of decade or so. I think T20, or 20 over games has been a an attempt to try and help with with TV ratings and bringing yep. people from outside of cricket into the sport. Uh, when you look at Test cricket, for me, it's the best sport in the world, and I love it to bits. But that's because I understand it very well. And I played a lot of cricket, and I, I can appreciate the kind of the nuance, and they kind of see it as a chess match. Yeah. Um, so, for example, if you don't know chess, chess is hell of a boring, and same with test cricket, right? It can be very boring for someone who's coming in from the outside. So, I think T20 is a great way for people to understand cricket on a more entertainment basis, and it's more it's it's more fun, and it's more kind of enjoyable, and kind of relaxed, and and you just go there and you watch a lot of runs being scored. Whereas test cricket is still known as the ultimate test and the ultimate form of the game, even though it's not as spectator friendly. Yeah. Um, and so there's lots of pros and cons when it comes to this because T20 is taking up a lot of the, the year nowadays. So people like me, I want to see more test crickets, but I understand that T20s are where the money is. And so a lot more T20 tournaments are being played all around the world. And that's kind of taking the place of a lot of test series, which is kind of hurts the, the, the cricket fans who love test cricket, like myself, but I think it's better for the sport because when you need that money to be able to sustain such a, such a global sport. When it comes to India, I didn't realize how big it was until I actually went to India, right? Yep. So you hear things <laughs> about India. You, th you hear about how like, it's very important to them and they say that Sachin Tendulkar was like a god to them and they see it as a religion. Until you actually go to India, you don't understand the extent to which cricket defines India. When I was in Bangalore, I was there for about a week or so. Everywhere I went, you would look left and right on every single side of the road, every open area, every courtyard, every grass patch. Everybody is playing cricket. Wow. And not just the kids, right? Not just the 11-year-olds and the 10-year-olds who you'd expect. But I saw guys who looked like they were in their late 50s <laughs> on a Thursday afternoon on like a side on a piece of concrete playing cricket with like an old bat and an old tennis ball. Amazing. Right. So we don't understand the extent to which they love their cricket there. Um, and the, fan the fanaticism is, you can see it when you watch a game that's in India, you look at the stadium, it's full every single match with like 60,000 people. Wow. No one sits the entire game. The noise in that stadium is absolutely like unbearable. Um, it really is a fascinating um, like kind of religion that's been born in India. And cricket is India, basically, nowadays. India controls a lot of the major cricket tournaments, yeah. a lot of the major cricket decisions um, because of the huge power that they have. Um, and I think that I think this is right. When South Africa are playing, when South Africa are playing, say against England now, there are more Indians watching that Test series than there are South Africans. Incredible, which is which is crazy. Um, so yeah, I, I I I love it. I'm I'm glad that there is a, a country that that looks at it like that because I certainly love the sports. Um, and the fanaticism is hard to understand until you actually go there. Absolutely incredible. I, I didn't realize it was at that scale either. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really just an interesting story of how uh, how a country would would look at a sport and, and until until they actually realize that you know they're actually pretty good at this. Um, and actually, as far as I know, got to kind of a final of, of one of the World Cups. Um, that's really when the the sort of changing uh, turning point happened uh, in India. And it's it's just really really interesting how now the T20 has uh, you know dominated the game. Um, I'm still glad for 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 people like you that the the Test series and ODIs are still a thing. Um, but but yeah, definitely a, a positive way. I'd say um, if it's bringing more people to the sport, um, bringing more scrutiny on it, um, and uh, yeah, just basically letting a lot more people enjoy it. Um, and just in terms of yeah 
basically how big it is in India. Um, I believe a couple of the Bollywood stars actually own their own teams um, in the uh, in the IPL league. Um, so fascinating that you know it's now even become a, a point of investment for many. So that's a that's a fantastic thing to see as well. Definitely. One more funny anecdote. When I was there, um, when I would mention that I was South African, the very first thing that any Indian <laughs> would say to me was A.B. de Villiers, A.B. de Villiers. Um, A.B. de Villiers is like a superstar there. Yeah. And so the only connection they had to South Africa was A.B. de Villiers. I mean, I was actually really privileged to be at uh, the game where A.B. de Villiers set a whole bunch of the uh, records for the ODI um, format. That was a, uh, everyone was wearing pink. It was one of those breast cancer awareness days at uh, Wanderers. Um, and yeah, just fantastic to be in the crowd, to be in the buzz when uh, somebody as talented as that um, just comes in and uh, and basically proves like a superhuman type feat. Um, so shall we move on to our next insert? Let's do it. Stuff I found interesting. All right, for the stuff I found interesting for this week, we're going to start with a book that I recently finished, which I'm going to show to the YouTubers right here. It's called The Organized Mind by a guy called Daniel Leverton. Um, basically what the book is, it is a combination of a lot of different fields. He is a, he is a, he's a science writer who thinks a lot about uh, productivity, psychology, um, kind of behavioral engineering and behavioral economics. And so what he's tried to do is take some of the key ideas from those fields and make it into a popular science book that can be read by masses who don't understand how to read like uh, scientific studies and that kind of stuff. So it's a very, very easy to read book. And it kind of talks about why our brains are so overloaded with information at this point in time. If we think about the kind of the amount of information that we see on a daily basis, when we look at our social media platforms, our, our newspapers, the radio, the TV, we are taking in information and stimulus at a rate unseen, and yeah. that's never happened before. And so what's happened is that it's kind of lowered our ability to concentrate in a lot of instances. It's increased our, our ability to be distracted and to distract ourselves from what is actually at hand. Um, and a lot of the, the issues with anxiety and with social awkwardness and whatnot comes from the fact that we have so much information coming at us all the time and perhaps our brains aren't entirely ready for this or aren't entirely evolved to be able to handle this amount of information. Yep. So it's a really cool book. Um, for me, a lot of the ideas were, were I had heard in other formats before, so I think I read this book too late. If I'd read this a few years ago, I think it would have more of an impact. Um, but I wanted to bring out two, two concepts that, that really stood out for me. If you've never read anything about productivity or never looked into productivity or this kind of stuff, then this book is a great place to start. Um, but if you have, then maybe it's worth just reading the summary. Um, but I thought I'd give you, Chad, two, two concepts that I think is quite cool. Absolutely. The first one is that what what he mentions as the most key resource in our life and in our days is attention, right? What you what you put attention on is what's going to change your life. So what you focus on or what you choose to do, or what you choose to direct that attention towards is what determines the quality of your life and what you're going to accomplish. So that resource is what we should be thinking about when we look to protect it and to direct it in an efficient way. Um, and where this comes into play is that what he kind of talks about some of the, ex the, the experiments they've done is that switching attention, so for example, working on one particular thing and then switching to another task, that switch actually takes a lot of mental energy and, um, and it, you pay a mental cost for that switch because your brain has to, to kind of move out of the zone that it was in at that time 
and now think about a new context and apply new attention and new mental energy in a different direction. And that, that switching is, is, the cost is actually significant. And so what it talks to is that when we sit down to do something important, it's actually very important that we sit and we stick with it for a long time. Yep. And we try not to get distracted by other things. Because the moment we get distracted, it takes a long time for our brain then to come all the way back to where it was. And that switching of attention is what we need to guard against. So what basically the crux of this is that multitasking is an illusion, right? When you think you're multitasking, you think you're doing three things at once, what you're actually doing is switching between tasks very, very fast. Mm. And every time you switch, you, you pay a price. So for, I think for the people who are looking to improve the way they think and improve the way they, they when you're working on important things, stick on it for as long as you can and pick one task to do at a time. Don't, don't kid yourself that you can multitask because it just doesn't happen like that. That's the first concept. The second concept, which I think was quite interesting, was what he called was the fundamental principle of an organized mind. And the idea here is to shift the burden of organizing information from inside of your head into some external system, right? So that's a very fancy way of saying take notes yep. and write things down, <laughs> right? We all kind of know that our brain is a mess. And maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I, I don't think I am. I think I'm speaking for a lot of people. My brain is an absolute mess. And if I try and remember things and try and work through concepts in my head, I can make some progress, but there's so much noise in there that it's hard to understand what, what's actually going on. Yep. The moment that I take that from my brain and articulate it by speaking about it, by writing about it, by recording it in some way, in some external format, I can then look at it more objectively and kind of pick apart some of the holes in the thinking, some of the holes in the theory, et cetera, and really work on that idea, work on that piece. So basically the idea here is that get as much as you can out of your brain and onto some sort of external format. What that does is two things. It clears your mind, but also it gives you something physical and something tangible to work with so that you can actually move forward in that particular task. So every single time an idea, a thought, something comes to you, write it down, have it in some sort of system, whether it's a to-do list, whether it's a note system in your phone, whatever it is, whatever medium you want to choose, get it out of your head and you'll think much more clearer, you'll be able to work with those ideas, and you'll be able to find a lot more inspiration and creativity because it's not just bumping around with your neurons up here. So those are two concepts from that book. Um, I, I recommend it if you haven't done any of this kind of reading before. If you have, that's all you really need to know. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, thanks for bringing our attention to it. I think I've come across this book before. Um, added it on my sort of to-do list, but like we chatted about in the previous episode, I have a long, a long bit of uh, actual actual execution um, in terms of uh, getting through the backlog of things I want to read. Um, but yeah, loads to unpack here. So I think let's definitely not just skip through this one. Um, in terms of your first uh, kind of just movement of how much media there is and how much we're actually taking in all the time, um, in one of my interviews, which um, we chatted about a few weeks back, um, I was actually at a marketing agency. Um, and one of the key shifts in how they're looking at, uh, you know, kind of targeting some of their marketing these days um, is basically the advent of uh, screen on screen. So a lot of people do not watch TV and just watch TV anymore. They have their phones open or an iPad open and are doing something at the same time. It's it's actually a crazy thought. Um, and if we exp if we sort of understand what's actually happening in the body, um, which you've just explained, is is rapid task switching uh, every single time we switch from the show that's playing in the background to what we're reading on our phones. Um, that's actually fascinating. And and the the fact that we're actually choosing 
to do this. It's almost like we become sort of tolerant or we actually almost crave um, this this chaos in our lives, which which, which is crazy. Um, so, so that's the first thing. And, and the second thing is kind of to address this. Um, I've seen in the last decade, certainly, a massive wave um, of uh, promotion of, of something like uh, mindfulness. So where, you know, you essentially sit uh, for a, a period of time and, and literally just focus on your breathing um, and, and try and just, just clear out, uh, you know, the, the, the clutter and, and try and, and sort of not, uh, not focus on everything that's all the thousands of thoughts that are racing through your, your brain. Um, I think it's an interesting one that's uh, basically an interesting change that I think is, is happening in society. Uh, we're seeing like the royal family talking about mental health and we have mental health awareness days um, and, you know, mindfulness is mainstream. We've got apps on our phones where, you know, a lot of people have, are, are basically um, advocating for us to, to do this daily. Um, so really such an interesting one. Um, and uh, I think a book like this has a lot of value, especially for those of us who actually choose to do screen on screen. Yeah, I think I think it's a key change in the way we think about ourselves and think about how we use our time, right? I think that the key neurological um, change here is that this is a dopamine thing. We get that dopamine, that small dopamine hit in our brain when we look at something new and that kind of novelty. And because our phones are now with us 24-7, they're kind of attached to our hand, um, we can now at, we can get to that dopamine immediately anytime we even get a little bit bored. The moment that the show in front of us is a little bit, oh, I'm a little, <laughs> a little bit boring, I go to my phone straight away, I go to my Twitter, my Facebook, etc. And I actually do both tasks worse, right? So I'm not really fully invested in the show, I'm not really fully invested in my Twitter, I kind of do both. And that's why this multitasking illusion, and that's what it is, it is an illusion, is so dangerous, right? We need to be able to train ourselves out of that dopamine addiction of looking for something new every single time. And mindfulness is scary for a lot of people. Yeah. It, it, for, for, for a lot of us, it's really hard to sit down with our thoughts and just be with ourselves for 10 minutes and not Definitely. do anything else, right? Yeah. It's really, really tough. Um, and it's one of those things where the ability to be alone with your own thoughts and just be okay with sitting on the couch and doing absolutely nothing yeah. Funnily enough, it's a skill that's very rare and people don't do it. And uh, so I think we need a little bit more stillness in our life. We need a little bit of those moments where we can sit down. And so mindfulness is a great way to do it. Um, but whatever way you choose to do it, we can't be continually um, receiving information because then there's no time for us to think for ourselves. All we're doing is ingesting, ingesting, consuming, consuming. We need that time to like, kind of stop that, that pipe and the inflow pipe and think carefully and creatively about what, what we want to create in the world, what we want to do in the world. And if we never give ourselves a chance to think like that, nothing's ever going to happen. You're just going to become a consumer for the rest of your life. And we want to become producers, not consumers. Well, that's that's an interesting one. And that's something I wanted to actually speak about. Uh, potentially, we'll touch a little bit more on in another episode. Um, because, you know, I know that a lot of Barry's spare time is, is spent doing productive things. Um, me as well, like, uh, you know, being in this, in this kind of uh, week that was, um, the festive period and all of that type of thing, um, I actually found myself being quite productive if we look at the, the podcast um, ended up splitting out a whole bunch of uh, different episodes and we've actually created a new channel um, just a little punt here if you are listening um, <laughs> which is called Across the Pond Clips which we've got on YouTube so basically we're going to sort of split out every single one of our episodes into sort of key topics and if you want to only look at one of those specific topics you can you can do that and if I look at yesterday as well I uh, edited a full photo shoot that I uh, had done uh, a few weeks back in, in Prague. So this fascinating one of switching, becoming, uh, switching being a consumer to, to being a producer um, and uh, information obviously being uh, really key at this. So uh, I think this is definitely a topic we'll, we'll keep 
going back to. Um, but if we look at uh, film and if we look at uh, you know uh, TV and, and what we just chatted about, one of the great parts of going to the cinema is that you can't actually take your phone out and you can't actually focus on something else and you actually do get a lot more immersed in what it is that you're watching. So this past weekend I went and uh, had a watch at the new Jumanji film and I just wanted to chat about the undeniable duo, the uh, mad chemistry between The Rock and Kevin Hart that we've seen in in years uh, in, in, in the last couple of years. Um, do you feel this is a duo to watch? Definitely. I, I, I love them both to bits. I love them both individually as personalities <laughs> and uh, I'm kind of a huge fan of all this stuff. Um, and when they're together, it goes to another level. I, I can't think of another duo that is more suited to each other and is more hilarious, to be honest, yeah. than, than The Rock and Kevin Hart. Um, and I think they must be the, probably the most valuable asset in Hollywood by a long margin at the moment. If you can yeah. get the two of them on your project, you're good to go. Um, so I completely agree. I think that they're both very charismatic. They both are funny in their own way. Um, and their banter and the way they tease each other and the ways that, way they rip each other off is just amazing to watch. Um, and so as a duo, I think I will go. I will pay money for anything they, they make. Um, and so I'm excited to go and see the new Jumanji at some stage. Yeah, definitely have to go and watch that. Um, at the end, there is a hint at a third, which is uh, pretty crazy. So um, yeah, that franchise definitely profiting from that chemistry. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the world just benefits when uh, they get together to do something. Um, something like, uh, you know, Central Intelligence, another film that they they did together which was uh, so so funny um yeah absolutely incredible to watch so let's move on um basically i touched on this a little bit uh, twice before in this episode um with the you know the cricket documentary and another documentary on political correctness um and uh, essentially this next one uh, another documentary on on the world's water crisis obviously uh, you know quite a quite a important one to talk about but on netflix there is a series called explained um i'm not sure if you've come across it before there are two seasons in i've only come into it late in the game so i've already just been catching up on the back catalog have you heard of this before i haven't i haven't but looking at the kind of the crickets and the the water and stuff it looks like it's quite wide ranging as a as a series Absolutely. Um, so I think what's really done well here is it's a series of short documentaries, sort of 20 minutes each. Uh, each one of them has a high profile narrator, people like Carly Kloss, Jerry Springer, um, you know, pretty, pretty high profile people. Um, and yeah, just really tackling interesting topics, um, sometimes topics that we don't really think much about. Um, you know, the world's water crisis, one that we're going to expand on now, um, but even something as simple as, you know, why diamonds are valuable. What what actually, what actually why is it, why did that happen? Why do we see diamond as, as being the the key thing? And and so just to, to look at some of those documentaries that um, how things have happened over, you know, the last couple of decades is, is really interesting. So I definitely recommend spending a bit of time there, especially if you want to spend your downtime doing uh, you know productive things um, so let's talk about this uh, key topic which is the world's water crisis um, which for me is fascinating something that we don't talk enough about um, the world's most valuable resource um, it's it's truly something we can't live without um, you know a lot of the other things um, there's sort of workarounds for but uh, water without having water for a couple of days uh, every single human life form will not continue to exist um, so Let's unpack this. Um, basically, 1% of the world, uh, the world's water is actually usable. 
Um, and a large portion of that is groundwater. Now, groundwater is uh, is something that uh, basically takes millennia to generate. Um, it should be seen as our reserves. Um, if we look at countries that have you know a lot of water, countries that don't, uh, something that I again I didn't really know uh, too much about. Canada is apparently the richest in the world, um, and Kuwait being the poorest. So. Let's let's quickly have a look. There's there's a lot to, to chat about here, so let's uh, let's do a thing, you know, one at a time. Uh, let's look at the Cape Town crisis that happened in South Africa, basically two years ago, where we saw a major city um, come about this day zero phenomenon, and only at that point um, did the city as a whole start to really think about their water use. Now, after this um, whole phenomenon, uh, we saw the day zero um, flag post basically being, uh, you know, drawn out. Um, as as the consumption rate had changed, and obviously as they got rain, um, but but basically the the consumption of the city had halved within four years, um, essentially from 2014 to to 2018. The consumption of the city had halved. Something as powerful as day zero actually being forced to to look at uh, what is our precious resource and uh, question our intake of it. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think I think a lot of the world was learning from Cape Town because, as you said, it was the first major city to go through this really scary kind of moment where there was this risk that there was going to be no water left. Um, and it's 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 quite strange because it's it is such a valuable resource, and we all understand how valuable it is. But because it seems ubiquitous, it seems it just comes out of our tap. We don't think about it. We th- we just hope that someone else is worrying about it. We hope that someone else is looking after it. Yep. And uh, this day zero thing kind of forced the actual citizens of the country to be realize, okay, hold on, we all have to band together if we want to survive this thing. If we want to make sure that this happens, th- there's a responsibility on every single one of us to use less water and to be more water conscious. And uh, that really did help in that in that process to kind of help the city of Cape Town survive that crisis and get through it and get to the other side. The risk, though, is that I wonder what's happened since then. I wonder if the consumption has gone back up to where it is because we forget very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and those kind of campaigns are very powerful because the, the stakes are so high. And as humans, we can kind of cooperate in those in those crisis moments and really make a difference. But what I'm interested to see is what's going to happen around the world to force consumers to think about this on a more regular basis to ensure that we never get to another day zero. Um, we never get to that 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 state again, and uh, whether that kind of awareness and what and all the kind of eco-friendly things we're chatting about is actually making a difference in the behaviour of people around the world. Absolutely, I mean, I think this is the this is the key thing. Is um, you know. After after Day Zero stopped in Cape Town, as you say, have they stuck to their consumption? I think why a documentary like this is so important is it basically outlines uh, the rest of the big cities in the world and the fact that this is a very real reality in the next decade for cities like London, Sao Paulo, Barcelona, and Mexico City. Mexico City being one I think that we definitely need to chat about. So. Basically, uh, Mexico City now home to about 22 million people. Um, historically, the city was built around um, a lake. And when the Spanish uh, sort of came in, they basically built up around the lake and, and really filled it um, pretty much. Um, and the city now floods uh, whenever it has rain. It has more rain than London. Um, and that water has nowhere to go. That water is not sort of quality processed water that can be used um, because it just sort of floods throughout the city. And because of that, they have to rely on their water from a different source, of which 50% of their water comes from groundwater. Now, we spoke about this a little bit uh, earlier, 
which, uh, yeah, groundwater takes millennia to generate. So they are basically tapping on their most precious resource. Um, the city is actually now sinking because of the fact that they're drawing out this uh, water from the ground. Um, and the other interesting thing here for me is that they lose 50% of their drinking water because of leaked pipes so again one of these where we clearly not placing a big enough value on water and uh like you say it it seems ubiquitous um but yeah we need to look at this at a a macro level um so i i think it's i think that's fascinating that's a crazy stat to lose 50 percent because your infrastructure is is not maintained correctly that that is that is nuts um and i think i think it's about time we were chatting about like these kind of issues coming to light and no one's talked about water for a long time and now it's starting to become into the mainstream with documentaries yep. like this um and places like mexico city like you say i, I didn't realize it was at that kind of level yep. and that kind of concern um and so i think that the more of these stories we hear the better to understand how valuable this resource is it's kind of strange though if we think about it because like 90 percent of the world is water right and exactly. these seas are huge like pools of water and so I, I remember when I first came across this this topic a while ago, I couldn't understand why we couldn't just take the seawater, right? Yep. And like we have desalination plants and all of that stuff, and we understand how to use them and they work and whatnot. Um, but if you dig deeper into the technology, it's incredibly expensive and exactly. incredibly energy intensive to do that. And so we run into another problem where we're going to then use more coal in order to feed these plants to clean the water, and that and that brings a whole new set of problems. So it's not a simple solution here. There isn't there isn't an easy way to get around this and so what we can do as consumers is educate ourselves about the about the issue educate ourselves about what the the how to improve things and to lobby our various governments and boards and municipalities to think cl- more cleverly and more smartly about these kinds of things um, and so whether it takes infrastructure changes whether it, whether it takes changes in consumer behavior whether it takes restrictions being placed by governments whatever we have to do we have to understand how valuable water is and uh, how we can actually improve that situation over time and make a sustainable change to to the water situation. Well, that's the interesting thing here is, you know, what can we actually do about it? So let's definitely unpack this. Um, certainly, all of this uh, all of this research that I'm speaking about is on the back of this documentary. Um, I haven't really done much um, further research beyond that. But uh, yeah, let's just unpack that. So like you say, the bulk of the, the world is water and, uh, you know, desalination currently is only 1% of the water that we use. Now, desalination has doubled in recent times um, but like you say incredibly expensive thing to do so what is the solution um, so basically they what they do is they split out the our intake so of the one percent of the water that is available in the world for us to use um, essentially only eight percent of that is used by you and I um, you know drinking having a bath flushing the toilet only eight percent um, it's a significant amount but that's not the key culprit here. 70% is used for agriculture and 22% for industry. So I think what we as consumers need to do here is really look at the choices of uh, the things that we consume and essentially the amount of water that it takes to generate those things. So something that is really fascinating to, to, to think about and uh, something that I hadn't really thought about much, but uh, I've, got a, I've got a couple of uh, little products here that they've mentioned in this documentary. So let's just have a look at some of these stats. Um, one glass of beer, obviously 500 mils of, uh, you know, liquid. You would think, oh, you know, kind of that's, that's the liquid uh, intake. It actually takes 74 liters of water, obviously to produce that's all the crazy. You know, hops, the barley, all of that type of thing. 74 liters of water for one glass of beer. A cup of coffee, 130 liters. A cotton t-shirt, 
2,500 litres of water. Um, this all obviously also very interestingly, uh, you know, dovetails into into uh, consumerism and uh, us basically just throwing away clothes, um, you know, not kind of holding on to things for as long as we do. Uh, but the most interesting thing here, now I'm not vegetarian at all. I love my meat um, in South Africa. That's big part of our culture and I think a lot of a lot of people a lot of places in the world um but I think this is this is the biggest uh the biggest sort of elephant in the room here is alfalfa alfalfa being one of the ingredients that uh you know cattle feed off of um and for one kilogram of alfalfa it takes 510 liters of water now every single cattle uh, eats on average 12 kgs of alfalfa a day um, and so if you kind of map it out over the lifespan and you basically quantify one quarter pounder one beef patty um, to water intake 1650 liters of water isn't that crazy and does that not make you uh, basically just think about the double or triple uh, patty burgers that we are just consuming at a whim yeah it's that that's a crazy number, and I, and every time I come across this kind of these kind of numbers, it really does put this in perspective. And as you say, one of the key arguments for a vegetarian or a vegan diet is exactly exactly this, right? It's yeah. the economic impact of housing all of this cattle and feeding them and raising them and having the land for them, etc. And what it takes to deliver that piece of meat on the end. And I think where, where the disconnect happens is that when you're buying that quarter pounder or that piece of meat in the grocery store, you just have no idea what actually went into making that exactly. thing. Yep. It just arrives in your local grocery store and you've got no connection to the huge process behind it that actually delivered that piece of meat to you in that carefully packaged pack. Yep. Right, And so the more awareness we can have of where our food comes from, what it takes to get it there, hopefully that will change some of the thinking around our diet, around what we put in our mouths, around the consumer decisions that we make. But if we don't have that connection to our food and we just kind of rely on supermarkets to deliver it to us in a, in a perfectly packaged piece of, um, piece of material, we're never going to understand what actually it takes to get there. Um, and so documentaries like this, I must go and watch this definitely, documentaries like this are important to help us realize that behind each piece of food or each product that we buy or each, each beer that we drink, there's a huge process that goes goes into it. Yep. And uh, there's a lot of things that are, are need to be taken into consideration when we think about why we do what we do. Absolutely. Absolutely fascinating one. And I definitely recommend anyone to actually go and uh, and have a watch. Um, really some interesting questions there, you know, obviously water being a, a basic human right, but uh, without us placing value on it and, and having to physically pay for it, um, things like this are happening um, where, you know, massive amounts of water are just being wasted um, for uh, essentially, you know, things that we need to just basically do a little bit of uh, thinking about and actually just change our consumption patterns. So let's move on to the next one. There's not too much on this uh, topic, but uh, let's move on to our next section. Looking ahead. So like we have always said, looking ahead is basically our outlet for um, talking about uh, gear, our, uh, you know, our favorite uh, fascinations, um, and obviously looking at how technology is changing our lives. Um, so basically, I'm really excited about this one. Um, I've been eyeing a device in the smart home space for uh, some time. Um, it is essentially a uh, basically just a series of uh, sensors that you connect uh, to your 
well, basically just connect to your power in your house and it will tell you uh, your CO2 levels, humidity levels, temperature levels and noise levels. Uh, now, obviously, as we all want to be sort of the healthiest uh, and best uh, sort of running human beings we can be, um, I thought this was quite an interesting one. Um, I got a mad deal on it, sort of saved more than 60%. So absolutely fantastic. Um, and uh, something that was really interesting for me is after plugging this thing in for the first night, uh, looking at how the CO2 levels change overnight, especially in a scenario where in London it's cold, you know, we don't want to have the windows open because that means losing heat. Um, but uh, ultimately there's two human beings who are breathing in that room and there's no fresh oxygen coming through. Um, and uh, so the CO2 levels through the night um, absolutely horrid. Um, I think quite an interesting one because yeah, basically just bringing visibility to something that you may have never thought about. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly instead of, uh, having, keeping that perfect temperature, it's better to open up the window, open up the door, let some fresh oxygen flow through. Obviously while we're sleeping, a lot of, uh, key mental development taking place. Um, you know, it's really important to have that, uh, fresh oxygen for, uh, these periods of time. Um, so I thought it was quite an, quite an interesting one. Um, have you ever heard of this type of technology? Would you be interested in in looking at it um what are your thoughts barry yeah so i've definitely heard about it and I, I would love to try it out unfortunately south africa is very behind the game when it comes to smart home it's one of the things that we are very very far behind on um and i i don't know anybody really who's using any sort of smart sensors in their home uh, beyond say google home here and there which does basic things but none of this kind of advanced internet of things type sensors um, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about because I think the world's going to look like this in a, in a few years. Like everyone's going to have sensors for everything, everywhere. Yeah. And all of this data is hopefully going to be used for some sort of good. So it's interesting to be able to look at data like that and make optimizations to your home, to your bedroom, to the way that you think about whatever you're doing, whether it's your sleep or your working out or whatever the story is. The more data you have, the better decisions yeah. you can make. Um, and so, yeah, I'm fascinated by it. I'll be interested to see what happens over the next few months, Chad, and whether you make small changes to your bedroom and see what kind of impact it has on your sleep, on how you feel in the next morning, etc. And whether this can actually change your behavior or whether it's simply going to be more information to throw at your brain you don't know what to do with it, right? <laughs> so the trick here... Yep. Is as always, is to take that data and actually turn it into action. So the reason you bought this thing was to improve your life in some way. Yep. So what? how can you use this data to make better decisions, to, to build better habits, and to change your environment to enable you to perform at your very best? Well, that's exactly it. And that's, uh, that's kind of one of the traps that I think a lot of us fall into um, when we get really excited about something um, like a smart tracker or, you know, kind of fitness watch, that, that type of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, once it's on your wrist, you kind of stop really looking at that data because of the fact that it's now just readily available. Um, in terms of changes, I definitely think I will be making some. I think the fascinating um, piece of this development of smart home technology, um, and it certainly is a lot more accessible in London, I completely agree about that, um, is that you can have essentially a hub. Uh, so I, I basically would would power my smart home from like an Apple TV, for example. And you can have um, in the sort of Apple home app, um, some sort of automation going on there. So now that you have a sensor, that can sort of sensor humidity level, you can basically program this up to a essentially dehumidifier. So now that you have a humidity sensor in your room, you can essentially say after the humidity gets, uh, let's say above 50%, above 60%, whatever the case is, my dehumidifier needs to turn on. 
Um, and I think that's the real interesting thing here. Obviously, there's uh, some sort of natural changes that we can make. For example, like I said, keeping that window a little bit open, opening the door just to make sure that the rest of the fresh air in the house is, is kind of flowing out and about. But also, um, sort of unlocking this technology to its full potential um, obviously means we'll probably need to buy some more devices in, in the future. Um, but it certainly is interesting to, uh, as to how humans are adjusting our, our living behaviors and using technology to really regulate the environments around us. Definitely. And, and this is kind of what's going to enable the artificial intelligence revolution to take place, right? The moment that we have this sort of data, we can then, as you say, use it to control other things in our home and use it to feed algorithms and feed kind of programs that help us make our lives better. And so this is where AI is going to really take hold. The more data we have, the more stuff we can do with it and the yeah. more interesting insights we can glean. Um, and so as each of these sensors come on, come on board, ide ideally you can make your life that little bit better and that compounds over time and makes, makes everything better in the end. So like I say, I, th I think this is the first of many. I think, Chad, in the next 10 years, you're going to have even more sensors in your home um, for all sorts of different things. Um, and I think that trend is going to continue into the rest of the decade. Well, hopefully South Africa catches up pretty soon too. Uh, let's move on to our next segment. Develop and grow. All right, and so this segment of Develop and Grow, I'm going to keep quite short because I know we're already running quite out of time. We have had a packed episode so far. Yep. Um, so two things from, from my side that, that, that happened in the last week. I went to go and see the new Frozen movie, Frozen 2, which I was very excited about. I'm a huge fan of Disney animation, um, and I, I loved the first Frozen movie. I think it was one of the best animations ever made. And uh, I was so I went into Frozen 2 with very muted expectations because I know that sequels normally suck. They are normally terrible and they normally ruin whatever was good about the first one because they're trying to milk it. Yeah. Um, and so I went into Frozen 2 with very low expectations and I was pleasantly surprised. It, it really is a fantastic film and it's really, really well done. Um, and so I loved it. I, I walked out of there with a smile on my face, um, singing all the songs, laughing at Olaf's silliness. Um, it really is a great movie. So please go and see it, everybody. What I wanted to pull out was um, kind of the moral crux of the movie. So in all of these Disney animations, obviously this, they, they're trying to encode some sort of moral at the end of the story for, for the kids to actually take away and also the adults, to be honest, to take <laughs> yeah. away from the movie. And so for me, the main moral crux kind of spoke to a philosophy that I really believe in and I kind of um, need to hear more often. And that is something called do the next right thing. Right. So when you're, when you're in a rut or when you are feeling down or things aren't going your way or you're feeling overwhelmed by a certain thing, we often are a bit apathetic. We don't know where to start or we kind of feel like we're in this hole. How do we get out? Right. And uh, so Anna, Anna sorry, um, sings in this wonderful song, just do the next right thing. Right. So the very next decision that comes to you, how, no matter how big or small, just do the next right thing. So don't worry about awesome. trying to change your life or trying to fix your divorce or trying to fix all the various problems in your life, whatever it is, this next, this next decision. So when you go to the grocery store, greet the cashier, like do the next right thing. Yeah. And that momentum... Once you start doing those small right things, then snowballs and you can get out of that rut. And so it's a nice kind of philosophy to think about when you are feeling down, just figure out what is the next small decision that I can make and make the right decision there. And that's how you get out of that rut. So by, by like it's a, it's a classic saying, how do you eat an elephant? <laughs> one bite at a time, right? Absolutely. You pick one piece of the elephant and you eat that small piece of the elephant and that's how you make progress. So yeah, the philosophy of Frozen 2 
do the next right thing. That's such, a, think, that's such a cool little mantra to live by. Um, I love it. It's something so simple. Um, and and uh, I definitely have to listen to this uh, this track as well because um, like we know, uh, you know, the Frozen th- soundtracks of the past have uh, definitely um, made waves around the globe. Uh, now, the, the next one, um, also something quite simple, um, but I'm quite keen to know why you, you're keen to, to sort of do this again. Yeah, so so a simple thing. I think we've we chatted a little bit about it beforehand where like our phones are now the home for everything. And yeah. so I've taken more photos in the last few years than I ever have in my entire life. Definitely. My camera roll is filled of thousands and thousands and thousands of photos, which yeah. is wonderful because they don't cost anything. I can take a, a billion of them and pick the one that I like and post it to Instagram and that's been fantastic. But what I found is that I never actually display them anymore. So for the thousands of photos that I've taken over my life, I never look at them really, right? I post them onto Instagram. I get that momentary glimpse of of, that that memory or whatever I was trying to capture in that picture. And that's kind of it. Mm. And what I found in the last year where I've been doing a lot of traveling, I've really been enjoying taking photos and getting to learn how to edit them and make them look even better. And I've taken some photos that I'm really proud of. And as a Christmas present for this year, this past year, my sister printed out a bunch of them for me and I've now got them in physical form. And when you look at them in physical form, you realize, oh, wait, that's actually a really cool photo. And now they're yeah. stuck up on my wall, and they're going to be memories for me going forward as to some of my travels of the last year. And so I just wanted to remind everybody that printing out some of your photos, even though it seems very old school, is actually a great way to remind yourself of those memories and actually get more value out of those photos than just sitting in your camera roll buried behind a billion other selfies, right? (laughs) By printing out the photos that you really care about or photos of friends and family or photos of memories, it really has improved my life and made my room a bit brighter. And so I thought I'd bring it up as a a simple reminder to us that you actually can print your photos out (laughs) and I'd argue you should do that. Definitely. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, pictures of all of our friends back at home that we miss so much uh, scattered on our on our fridge. Um, and yeah, basically every single time I'm there sort of cooking, uh, you know, it, it j- just kind of that little moment of reflection. Um, also, we, we spoke about gratitude and and all that type of thing. It, it's really great to, to be able to look back, uh, not to linger in the past, but certainly look back and look at some of the, the great memories some of the great uh, things you've done and, 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 you know, where you've grown in your journey type of thing. Um, so definitely... Uh, agree with that. I want to also flag out to anyone who is in London. I'm sure you would have seen on the tube, we spoke about all the media we consume and all the adverts on the tube as well, but uh, certainly one that we've used in the past that, um, you know, is not a sponsor at all, but I, I certainly want to just uh, uh, on this topic expand on it. Um, something called Snapfish, um, which allows you to print basically 100 free 4x6 prints uh, every year. Um, which is insane um, how a company will literally give you such a perk um, for complete free in the hope that you, you know, use some of their other products, which we have done. Um, you know, we've kind of turned some of our holidays into little books um, that we can now basically just grab out whenever somebody's visiting us. Uh, oh, yeah, we went to Nice. Here's a, here's a book of it, um, which I think is also a really nice way of, of uh, churning those memories into something that is lasting. Um, so, yeah, definitely check out Snapfish if you live in London. Let's move on to a question from a listener. What's on your mind? Great. So um, what's on your mind? Uh, We definitely need to get more questions from uh, all of our listeners. Please do send them through. As we've said before, the Anchor app has uh, platform functionality for, um, yeah, you can literally just go on on your browser and record a voice note and send through a question. So let's have a look at the question that we have today. 
Hey guys, I have a question for you on the topic of technology and it's to do with mobile phones. So if you have a look at where mobile phones first started and where they are today, there's been massive advances in battery technology and hardware and cameras and, and software tech as well. So my question is, where do you guys see the next big advancement in mobile phone technology? Do you think it's going to be uh, another hardware upgrade or will it just be software like it has been over the past few years? Cheers. Thanks very much for your question, Ryan. Um, that one, yeah, quite an interesting one. If we look back at this last decade, which is obviously what a key theme of this episode, um, how much mobile phones have, have changed in recent time. And like Ryan says, a lot of those advances have been coming in the form of software. So although obviously hardware has um, you know improved over time, um, obviously we're looking at now uh, companies who are trying to offer better things and they really have nothing else to do other than put another camera on the back of of a cell phone, which is, uh, which is a bit <laughs> crazy. But um, I think an interesting question, if we look at where the world is going to go on the, on the mobile phone front, where do we think that's going to go? I'm going to sort of just start with my views on this. Um, I certainly think uh, software, I certainly think that's where we're going to keep going. I think hardware at the moment is underutilized. We sometimes don't even touch the full thresholds of what our uh, mobile devices are capable of. Um, so I definitely think we're going to see software that uh, that comes in and, and, and changes things even more. If we look at like we're like Barry's going to, um, or probably going to going to chat about artificial intelligence, that type of stuff. Um, I think, yeah, as soon as these, these, this technology is readily available. Um, uh, you know, mobile devices will be the next uh, thing that I think we'll we'll see it coming through on. We've seen cloud technology change over time. Um, certainly, our last episode where we spoke about uh, Apple and investing money into satellites, um, obviously building these networks, making sure that these networks actually work better. Um, I, I think we're going to see a lot of advances uh, on that front. Um, so definitely software um, in terms of cloud storage, cloud uh, computing. If we even look at something as interesting as um, I think it's Xbox who's re releasing a product um, where you can basically play games on an internet connection. You don't have to have a physical console in your uh, lounge, which is crazy. So I think we're going to see a lot of uh, that sort of cloud computing benefits um, unlock in the future on our mobile devices. Barry, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree. I think software is is the place to go. I, I, as you say, the amount of computing power that's now being able to be put onto these 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 machines and these phones is enabling a whole wide range of new use cases, yeah. and that's going to continue to develop as we go forward. As you get more and more machine learning and AI on these systems, you're going to be able to do things that previously would be be unimaginable, right? So I think software is the key development and the, and the key thing that's got a lot of room to go, a lot of room to grow. When we look at the hardware itself, we've kind of seen, kind of your comments about the cameras is indication <laughs> that we've seen a bit of a stagnation, right? Definitely. A cell phone of today looks very looks exactly the same as a cell phone from four or five years ago. Yeah. And so we've seen a little bit of a stagnation there. The only kind of um, potential change we could be seeing is folding screens going yes. forward, right? So we've seen Samsung um, come out with their folding screen where basically you've got two phones that fold out into become like a mini tablet. Yep. And so we've seen the first version of that. And so that's a potential improvement on the hardware side. Yep. But other than that, I can't see many places for growth. I can't see them getting much thinner. I can't see them changing the form factor that much. I think all of the developments are going to come in software. And in my opinion, that's where that's what matters at the end of the day. Like the form factor is is novel for the first week or two when you have a new phone. Definitely. But after a while, it's what you use it for that actually matters. And so the software there is what's going to matter in the end. Absolutely agree there. Uh, same page. So yeah, that basically takes us to the end of uh, another really, really jam-packed episode. I 
as ever, as always, uh, thoroughly enjoy this process. Enjoy just having um, a bit of uh, banter back and forth with Barry. Um, like we said, you know, in, in a lot of daily life, we don't uh, have these deep, meaningful conversations. So hopefully you enjoy sort of just tuning in on them. Um, Barry, I wanted to just uh, just have a little chat about some of the development of our podcast. Um, we are now in Sweden, Chile and Finland. How amazing is that? That is, that is amazing, and, and that's testament to the power of the internet, that our little podcast recorded from our rooms in London and Johannesburg yeah. can be spreading all around the world. And so if you are in Chile or Finland or anywhere around the world, please send us a message. We'd love to know Definitely. how you found us, um, why are you listening, are you enjoying yourself? We'd love to hear some more communication from the listeners. Um, and so if you are in one of those countries that seem a bit bizarre, but we love to have you on board, we'd love to hear from you. So please do send us a message through any of our social media channels or a question even better for us to answer one of the episodes yes. but like Chad I really am enjoying this and I'm very grateful that you guys are listening I'm grateful that anybody is listening um, and so thank you so much for all the support and uh, we look forward to continuing for a very strong 2020 we hope to build this podcast into a real behemoth one day and uh, we're in the beginning stages of that journey Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, you know, we're really so grateful. Cannot keep reiterating that enough. Um, but yeah, Happy New Year. Hope uh, it's a prosperous one for you. Um, and hopefully we can uh, just sort of be along for uh, what is a journey of self-improvement uh, for this year. Um, I think we're all excited to get started on the new decade. So thanks for tuning in and uh, hopefully you enjoyed episode eight. This was Across the Pond. Oh.